0: Welcome to our podcast, Decarb Districts, where we in five episodes explore the role of district energy in the green transition. My name is Susanna Tull, and in the second episode, we'll talk about modern low temperature district heating. What is modern district heating? How does it help cities to increase the share of efficient and renewable heating? And what are the challenges that cities face when going for modern district heating? These are some of the questions we want to answer. And I'm very, very pleased to welcome the guest of today's episode, Alessandro Porovacchi, from the DHC Plus technology platform. DHC Plus is a part of EuroHeat & Power, which is the industry association and, if I can say so, the voice of district energy in Brussels. Welcome, Alessandro. And Alessandro, to jump right in, your organization has been advocating for many years for district heating and cooling to play a bigger role in the energy transition. What is your or your organization's vision for district energy and why do you think it can contribute more to the energy transition than it does today?
1: Hello Susanne, thanks to you for the introduction uh, and thanks uh, to Danfoss for, for this invitation. Our vision is in a way very simple and to explain it I'll mention two facts. One, heating and cooling accounts for roughly half of the energy consumed in the European Union. And two, cities produce 75% of CO2 emissions globally. So, decarbonizing, heating and cooling in our cities is one of the major challenges of our time. And you can solve that problem by using renewable efficient smart district energy. We are on a journey to an integrated energy system through more efficiency and more flexibility. And an increased use of renewable energy energy and waste energy sources.
0: Could you give us a couple of examples here, which renewable and waste heat sources are we talking about and what exactly is waste heat or or waste energy?
1: Waste uh, waste heat or also excess heat is heat uh, that is produced as a byproduct while doing something else uh, for example, uh, uh, excess seed can, can come from an industrial process, or uh, also you should see uh, a lot of potential of excess seed overall in the city. Uh, so you may have excess seed from uh, supermarkets, uh, uh, from uh, wastewater uh, treatment. Uh, areas from uh, uh, metros, from commercial buildings, uh, and so on. So the advantage of district heating is that it's able to capture many diverse energy sources and to integrate them all at once. So it's very, very flexible and uh, and able to adapt to geographical and even historical conditions. Um, that's that explains why we had some basic forms of district heating even back to the Roman Empire, why we have a very modern uh, heating uh, heat network today and why we will have an even more advanced one in the future.
0: So you describe district energy as a flexible infrastructure where you can basically plug in all kinds of energy sources that are available. Can you explain a little bit more why this aspect of flexibility is so important in today's or or future energy systems?
1: Flexibility is the best quality you can have in what is becoming a more integrated system. Uh, District energy networks can absorb large amounts of renewable electricity, provide balancing and storage to the grid, and so acting as a local energy backbone and and as a virtual battery in a way. And when you couple district energy to heat heat pumps, you can leverage on power to heat, which is around six times more efficient than power to gas, depending on the circumstances. And also, district heating can be optimized by thermal storage, which is 100 times cheaper than electricity storage. And that, differently from batteries, can have a daily, but also a seasonal function. And all these sources and all these integrated networks are causing a lot of complexity. And so here is where the digitalization comes into, the play, into play.
0: And I think we, we already see this development uh, today, especially in some Scandinavian countries that already today have high shares of renewable energy in their district heating networks, while in other countries, for example, Eastern European countries, district heating is still relying to a large extent on fossil fuels, on coal, oil, gas, and so on. And those networks, they also get a large portion of their heat from fossil based CHP, combined heat and power, which are plants that might be shut down in the coming years. So these district heating networks will need to find other available, more sustainable sources of heat. And in order to utilize these sources, they will need to modernize their networks, moving to higher efficiency, uh, lower temperatures, having better controls and so on. In other words, they need to move to a more modern form of district heating, which is also sometimes referred to as fourth generation district heating. So how do these modern networks exactly look like and what differentiates them from their predecessors? And can they be applied everywhere across the board?
1: So if you look at the for example, the Eurostat statistics, you can clearly see that the European countries with the highest share of renewables in heating and cooling, and have one thing in common, uh, they all make large use of district heating networks. Uh, Scandinavian countries are not the only ones uh, with a high share of renewables in district heating. Uh, The results from the Baltic countries are very impressive as well. And uh, uh, according to our statistics, uh, already three years ago, France had already over 50% of renewables in in, in the networks, Austria over 40%, and same for Finland and other non-Scandinavian countries. To reply to your questions on how these networks look like, uh, I think that the point is that, that there is a lot of richness and diversity of different types of heat network systems depending on the local conditions. Let's take uh, the case of Geothermal, which is making uh, uh, an impressive comeback. Uh, you know, My last business uh, trip before the lockdown was in Munich, which is about to provide Geothermal heat for 80,000 residents. And want to generate all district heating from renewables by 2040.
2: If we get a little bit more technical, um, a, a recent study that was done by Aalborg University in Denmark estimates that we could actually save 120 terawatt hours per year in primary energy supply by going for low temperature, by going for more modern district heating instead of district heating with higher temperatures as most networks are. Are designed today. So, can you explain a bit how do lower temperatures actually lead to higher efficiency of networks and how do they um, very concretely enable the, the integration of renewable sources that could not be integrated with higher temperatures?
1: Uh, well, uh, traditional district heating grids are operated at temperatures levels around uh, uh, 100 degrees. In what uh, uh, we call low temperature uh, district heating, the supply uh, is around uh, uh, 60 uh, degrees or even less. So why uh, why is good to, to lower the temperatures? Well, uh, there are several reasons. Um, you obtain uh, significant gains in the energy efficiency uh, across the whole value chain, from the production to the consumption. Uh, the heat losses in the pipes uh, get very much reduced. Another very important point uh, is that low temperature district heating can make easier use of uh, waste heat of renewables, which may themselves be available only at lower temperatures. And for example, renewables produce heat uh, with with higher efficiencies at lower temperatures. Um, another point that is also facilitates the integration of heat pumps. And so by doing that, you open up to uh, the, a direct dialogue with the with the electricity grid. And all this is uh, reducing operating costs. And uh, as a consequence, uh, it will be cheaper also for the consumer.
0: So the higher efficiency and the lower temperatures are key here to integrate heat sources that themselves run on lower temperatures. Um, I know it's probably very hard to choose for you, but is there any example of a city that you think is especially good practice when it comes to building a state-of-the-art network or finding creative ways to deal with the challenges linked to the transition of a district heating network of an existing one or the transition to district heating?
1: Uh, well, uh, indeed, it's difficult to point at one single state-of-art network because, uh, yeah. Also, my message is that the best configuration of each network depends on the local conditions. Uh, on the other hand, I, I, yeah, I can share a couple of examples that I think are quite creative. Let me take an example of a city which is transitioning pretty fast from a fossil fuel-based to a renewable-based system, uh, thanks to district heating. Espoo, the second largest city of Finland, is in the process of decommissioning two coal-fired units, feeding the local district heating. Uh, they are in the process of replacing the coal with bioenergy, geothermal, heat pumps which will use treated wastewater and seawater, waste heat from an industrial area and data centers powered by wind, And they will also use uh, very uh, much smart demand response solutions. And so the system will be carbon neutral at 85% in only five years from now.
2: That sounds very impressive.
1: Another very interesting case uh, is the one of Lund, uh, a city which has already decreased its emissions by half compared to 30 years ago and uh, uh, which is a very renowned university, uh, is now building the world's largest low-temperature district heating network network based on waste heat. In this case, the waste heat comes from a particle accelerator, which is uh, powered by green electricity, uh, in this case, hydro and wind power. The waste will be delivered with a supply temperature of around 65 degrees uh, to a new uh, very sustainable city district where 40,000 people will live and work. And also what is interesting is that the biomass that is presently used uh, in this uh, system uh, can be used elsewhere to replace a fossil fuel based network.
2: I think that's a very interesting example. Um, it's not like every city has the, has a particle accelerator in there. In in the area, but this idea of of using waste heat first and foremost, so so heat that would otherwise be wasted, and then also replaced with the waste heat sources that can then be used actually to decarbonize other sectors. So so thanks for that example. Wouldn't that also mean that district heating systems are are more resilient? I'm I'm thinking of now in the COVID nineteen crisis, we have been talking a lot about resilience of energy system systems. Um, what happens, for example, when international supply chains are disrupted, when people cannot go to work as they could before? Um, so, so is there any, any advantage here in, in having district energy in terms of resilience?
1: Uh, well indeed, uh, uh, district energy can be very resilient uh, because it uh, is mostly based on, uh, on local sources. And uh, and actually, it can be based on more than than one source, on, on several sources uh, uh, at once.
0: And that way, it would be independent from international uh, supply chains and their disruptions. Moving into a little bit of different area, um, everything that we've discussed now, what's necessary to move to a more modern district heating network, lowering temperatures, integrating a lot of new fluctuating sources, that can be quite a task. And in your work with cities and utilities, what do you experience are the biggest challenges to move to modern district heating from a technical perspective?
1: Uh, Well, the the, the upgrading process uh, uh, to improve the efficiency of of district heating grids is complex and and implies high investment. So, first of all, it's important to have all the stakeholders involved already in the planning phase. Uh, that means uh, the heat suppliers, uh, including the potential heat suppliers of excess heat, uh, the district heating operators, uh, the housing associations, the building owners, the end users, and obviously also uh, the local policymakers.
2: Okay. So, so, quite a lot of stakeholders that are yeah. involved in this
1: project. Yeah, quite a lot of stakeholders. Um, then, uh, in many cases, only parts of the overall systems uh, are upgraded in smaller steps. This has uh, an advantage of being faster and of spreading the investment, but it also includes the risk of making less harmonised and and less efficient improvements of the overall system. So, uh, the way to start the real work is to improve the energy efficiency of the buildings. So, low-temperature district heating and an efficient building stock complement each other perfectly. The next thing is upgrading and retrofitting the distribution system, including the substations. So, adapting the piping dimension, rebuilding the network, uh, reducing the heat losses, and and introducing uh, a more advanced digital management. And finally, the efficiency measures can be implemented on the generation side. So don't, don't forget that uh, the digital upgrade of the system. So you have to imagine buildings interacting with the energy production and the distribution system to continuously exchange information about which energy sources uh, are available at what point in time. And buildings can also communicate with each other in real time all these systems can learn by themselves and automatically make the whole energy system more and more efficient. So this is really the great power of digitalization.
2: Alison, let me just get back to one very interesting point that you mentioned. You said, or two points, you said on the one hand that uh, one of the challenges is that often these networks are modernized like step by step, um, which does mean there's maybe not very cannot be a very holistic approach and you also said that um the the interplay between the buildings and the network is is really crucial Wh- why exactly that why are the buildings so important when we talk about a district heating network which is independent from the building some some might think uh
1: well indeed uh let's say retrofitting the buildings is uh, is a fundamental part of the energy transition but we have to look uh at the energy efficiency from the supply and from uh, the demand.
2: Having to involve all these different stakeholders, um, having to to look at all these different parts of the energy system also, this seems to require a lot of engagement from from cities and and even citizens, no?
1: Oh yes, Uh, it it will require a a massive amount of engagement from the local communities everywhere. Uh, We always have to remember that the energy transition is not only a CO2 reduction exercise, it is about people. It is about making their life better for them and, and for their children. If we are not able to communicate that, uh, we have uh, engagement only from few communities. Well, in that case, the energy transition won't really happen to the extent that we need and will be too, too little too late. So luckily, many local authorities are taking an active role in ensuring that their citizens can have access to uh, a sustainable and and reliable uh, thermal comfort now and and in the future. Do
2: Uh, do you have a few more, maybe a few more examples here on on where is this happening, where are cities actually involving um, their citizens in this transition?
1: Oh, 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 yes. Well, for example, uh, the Netherlands uh, has set the goal to phase out uh, gas for over 7 million households uh, by 2050. And in this case, the municipalities are on the lead uh, in organizing the uh, the decarbonization of their territories. So the number of of buildings uh, connected to the district heating system uh, could uh, double by 2030. But even when you don't have a clear uh, national strategy to decarbonize the eating, eating uh, sector via, via district eating, there are very interesting local initiatives spontaneously uh, popping up uh, in many countries. Uh, for example, Elco uh, in Belgium issued a concession contract to develop a district eating grid in which citizens can be joint owners. So 35 percent of the project is open to uh, direct f- financial participation.
2: Very interesting to hear how how actually cities and and citizens locally can engage in in district energy, and and moving a bit from the from cities and the national agenda to the bigger agenda to to EU policy making. Um, Alessandro, you have been working now in in Brussels for quite a while and and you at EuroHeat and Power you are in quite close contact with European policy makers. Um, Just at the end of last year the Commission launched this European Green Deal which is basically laying out the roadmap and how we want to decarbonize our economy in in Europe. Do you you see here that that policy makers in any way acknowledge the role of district energy? Does it play a, a role in these plans?
1: Oh yes, very much. Uh, the, the ambition of the Green Deal is to set uh, Europe on track uh, for the deep decarbonisation of uh, uh, for all the sectors of the economy. Uh, for example, in the recent uh, EU strategy on energy system integration, uh, we have seen um, a very important recognition uh, in the ability of, of district heating in connecting local demand uh, with renewable and, and waste energy sources as well as with the wider electric and, gra- and, and gas grid. Uh, so, these are really exciting times and the, the Green Deal is a fantastic opportunity to scale up and, and speed up the deployment of efficient renewable and, and smart district heating.
0: I think that concludes the episode very nicely. Thank you so much, Alessandro, for joining us. And thanks to everyone listening. If you want to learn more about sustainable heating and cooling, you can follow the links in the episode description or check out the rest of the episodes of our Decarb Districts podcast or other podcasts on our channel, District Energy Insights. In the next episode, we talk about how a system approach can help cities find the optimal solution to decarbonize heating and cooling. Stay tuned.